In this morning's first reading, Rosemary read to us from the 49th chapter of the book of the prophet Isaiah. And that text represents a dialogue, if you will, an exchange between God and the promised Messiah. And you notice that it opens with God speaking to the Messiah. It says, The Lord said to me, You are my servant, Israel, through whom I will show my glory. And then the text goes on, the Messiah responds, Now the Lord has spoken, who formed me as his servant from the womb. The very most important verses in this first reading are near the end of the passage. It is too little, the Lord says, for you to be my servant, to raise up the tribes of Jacob. I'll make you a light to the nations, that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. So you have in this little passage from Isaiah chapter 49... An invitation by God to the Messiah to come, when that will come. The Messiah will be sent to minister to the Jewish people, Jacob and Israel, two names that refer to the same person. Okay? Jacob and Esau were the two sons of Isaac, but God changed Jacob's name to Israel in the book of Genesis when God wrestled with Jacob. And so the Messiah has a ministry to the Jewish people, but beyond that, God says to the Messiah to come, it is too little. It's not enough that I'm sending you to minister to the Jewish people. I want you to be a light to the nations. I want you to bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. That is the most shocking part of this text for the Jewish people who heard it and who read it. We are the chosen people. Israel is God's chosen people. This is the Holy Land. The heck with the rest of the world. This is where it all happens. And yet Isaiah says, no, no, no. God wants God's salvation to be brought to the very ends of the earth. Well, that means Gentiles. That means non-Jews. That's right. That's very offensive, many Jews find. God says, not in my mind. I want all my creatures to be saved. Now, Deacon Jim proclaimed to us a passage from the Gospel of St. John in chapter 1. And this is a really important text. And so I said to some folks, this Sunday is kind of an echo of last Sunday. Last Sunday was the baptism of the Lord. This is the Gospel of John. This is the fourth account, the fourth account of the baptism of Jesus. Mark, Matthew, Luke, and John. And yet this one here is very different from Mark, Matthew, Luke, and John. Very different because it is the only one of the four accounts of the baptism of Jesus which proclaim and affirm Jesus' pre-existence before his conception in the womb of Mary. If you were to only look at Mark, Matthew, and Luke, you could conclude, as Christians did in the first three or four centuries of the history of the church, that Jesus began simply in the womb of Mary. He was born, he grew up, and at one point he became the Messiah at his baptism. So Jesus' beginning would have taken place only at the conception in the womb of Mary. That's not what the Gospel of John says. In fact, if you go back to the beginning of chapter 1, it reads, In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And that Word came and lived among us. So the Word of God, which existed before the creation of the universe, was already God. That was Jesus. And so you have John the Baptist saying, The Father spoke to me. Because in the Gospel of John, the voice of the Father is not addressed to Jesus, as it is in Mark and Luke. In Mark and Luke, God says to Jesus, you are my son, today I have fathered you. 
Not in John and not in Matthew. In both of these texts, the voice of the Father is to John the Baptist, to the bystanders, to you and to me. To you and to me. And John says twice, I did not know him. So when you find those folks saying, oh, go back to the Gospel of Luke, and the angel Gabriel says to Mary, your relative, your kin, Elizabeth, whom everybody called barren, is pregnant. She's in her sixth month. And the baby's going to be born of her. It'll be very special. You say, well, that means Jesus and John the Baptist are cousins. They must have known each other. They must have grown up together. Mary goes and spends two or three months with, her, with Elizabeth. John says, uh-uh. No, no, no. Don't go that route. Don't go that route. Because John the Baptist is not there promoting his cousin. He's not there promoting a relative. He's promoting someone about whom God has spoke to him. And John says, I have to affirm him because he existed before me. In Luke's gospel, Jesus is conceived six months after John the Baptist is, 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 is conceived. The angel Gabriel says to Mary, what I'm offering to you, trust me, it's going to take place because your Elizabeth, your relative Elizabeth, whom everybody called Barron, is already in her sixth month. And then Mary says, let it be done to me according to your word. John the Baptist says, Jesus existed before me, even though chronologically Jesus was conceived as a human being after John. So John the Baptist is affirming the pre-existence of Jesus. And in theology, we refer to this as high Christology. High Christology, affirming that Jesus is indeed, as the gospel passage concludes, the Son of God. In the first reading from Isaiah 49, God refers to the Messiah simply as his servant. You are my servant. John the Baptist will say, oh, the Jesus that I'm going to baptize and is going to baptize you in water and the Holy Spirit, he is more than just a servant of God. He's the son of God. Very, very important. Now, John the Baptist says twice I did not know him. And in fact, John the Baptist appears frequently in the Gospel of John. And the problem that John the Baptist has with Jesus is that he does not begin to understand that Jesus is going to realize what Isaiah concluded with, Jesus is going to be a light to all the nations. Jesus is going to bring God's salvation to the ends of the earth. John the Baptist can't conceive of that. Theologians tell us that John the Baptist is probably the last of the Old Testament prophets. Isaiah was a big, very important Old Testament prophet. But there are many. There are a dozen Old Testament prophets. But suddenly the last one chronologically is John the Baptist, who identifies and announces the Messiah to come and begins to understand who that Messiah really is because he hears the voice of God speak to John the Baptist. The voice said to me, the one who sent me said to me, on the one upon whom you see the Holy Spirit descend, know that that one is the Messiah, that one is my son. So John the Baptist is going to struggle with the fact that Jesus' ministry is going to be to everybody. In fact, in the Gospels of Matthew, Jesus only begins his public ministry once John the Baptist is arrested. Now, John the Baptist had only ministered in the Jordan Valley, and the texts say that people from Jerusalem and Judea, the southern part of Israel, came to see him, came to listen to him, came to be baptized by him. When Jesus begins his ministry, he does it in Galilee in the north where John never ministered. Jesus does it to the Samaritans in Samaria where John never ministered. 
Jesus also brings his message to Jerusalem and Judea, and he brings it to the land we call Lebanon. He brings it to the country we call Jordan. He spends time in Egypt. And so all of this is beyond John's understanding. He'll keep saying, I get a grab with this. We, the Jews, are God's chosen people. How can the Messiah be reaching out to others? And there's that big jump that John and his disciples will have to make and that we are invited to make too. Jesus came for absolutely everybody. Absolutely everybody. I was born in 1941, and I was in Europe studying theology during the Second Vatican Council in the mid-60s. So I was raised in a church in the 40s and 50s that said, we Catholics, we've got it all. We have the monopoly of salvation. If you're not a Catholic in a state of grace, bye-bye. If you're not a Catholic, sorry, folks, you're in the wrong church. Vatican II said, you got it all wrong. You got it all wrong. Because the church is all the baptized. And you say, well, we're, we're not united as Christians. That's our problem. That's our problem. And that's why we have to pray and work for unity among all Christians. Why are the churches divided? Why are the churches divided? Go back and look at the history of Christianity. The year 1054 when a cardinal from Rome traveled to Constantinople and excommunicated the Patriarch of Constantinople. And the Patriarch of Constantinople, who had a temper equal to the cardinal, said, I excommunicate you. And the, the division between the churches was broken. The division was broken. It's been broken for a thousand years. Even though we Catholics officially acknowledge that the sacraments celebrated by the Orthodox are completely valid. Their bishops are really, bi really bishops. Their, their baptized people are really baptized. Their priests are really priests. All their sacraments are valid. You say, yeah, but they don't accept the primacy of the Pope. I remind you, the primacy and the infallibility of the Pope was declared at Vatican I in the year 1870. 1870. Okay? Eight, over 800 years after the split. Why are we at odds with the Protestants? Why are we not one church with them? You go back to Martin Luther. And if you're still tempted to say as you were raised to say, shame on Martin Luther for splitting the church, you're not paying attention to Pope John Paul II and to Pope Francis. In 1983, Pope John Paul II celebrated the anniversary of the birth of Martin Luther, who was born in 1483. And he said of Martin Luther, Martin Luther was a priest, who had a great sense of concern for the well-being of his people. And his 49 theses, which he attacked, which he tacked to the door of the chapel of Wittenberg, are good theology. You don't get to heaven with indulgences. You don't get to heaven by worshiping relics. You get to heaven by being sincerely sorry for your sins and reaching out in faith for the grace that Jesus brings us. There's no other way. And so a couple of years ago, when in 2017, the Lutheran churches celebrated the big anniversary of the Reformation, which began in 1517. And they celebrated in the city of Lund, L-U-N-D, Lund, Sweden, who arrived as an unexpected guest, Pope Francis. Pope Francis came to celebrate that moment. Because he said, we have to bring our churches back together again. 
And remember when Martin Luther stood before the Holy Roman Emperor at the Diet of the City of Worms. It sounds so terrible. It sounds like a diet thing, you know. And it's called the Diet of Worms, which the diet was the name of the Imperial Assembly, Parliament, if you will. And it met in the German city of Worms. The Emperor said to Martin Luther, are these your books? And Martin Luther said, yes, they are. And the Emperor said, you must recant all of this. You must deny all of this. If you're going to be still part of the Catholic Church, you have to deny it all. And Martin Luther said, prove to me on the basis of sacred scripture that I'm wrong and I'll recant right away. Otherwise, here I stand, I can do no other. Vatican II says the Bible is the very soul of theology. You can't do theology, honest theology, without the Bible. So what happened in Vatican II? Notice how we changed. Now we celebrate the liturgy in English. We hear the scriptures proclaimed in the language we understand. English here, French in France, Quebec, German in Germany, and so forth and so on. Because for all that time, for all those centuries, you and I and our ancestors, our predecessors, were denied access to the truth contained in the sacred scriptures. I spent years as an altar boy. Many of you did too. Back then, I'm sorry, there were no altar girls. Things have improved a lot since then, haven't they, Lauren? <laughs> Lauren is our altar girl this morning. And so back then, I heard Mass often in Latin. Did I know what I was saying? I had no idea. The priest would begin in Troibot Altare Dei, and I'd respond, Adem Quilitificat Juventute Me, and whatever the heck that means. <laughs> and then he'd begin the gospel. I always began in, with the phrase in Latin, in illo tempore. At that time. Did I know what it meant at that time? I had no idea. No idea. But we figured God only spoke Latin, so we had to celebrate Mass in Latin. <laughs> and so every year, we had the same scriptures every day that, of every year. So for example, this second Sunday in ordinary time before the council, the scriptures were the same every year. Now we have a three-year cycle of scriptures. We've increased by, th by 300% the amount of Bible you and I get to be exposed to. And that's wonderful. But also it's done in a language you and I can understand. What's important to, you know, it's so important for you and for me to understand the Word of God because it is addressed to us. So the scriptures of today about the baptism of Jesus as John sees it is about our baptism as it was last weekend as well. You and I were baptized into the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And as baptized Christians, we share in Jesus' ministry as priest, prophet, and leader. What does that entail about us? What do you expect of me as an ordained priest? What do you expect of Jim as an ordained deacon? What do you expect of, of Bishop Olmsted as an ordained bishop? What do you expect of us? You say, well, we've got these expectations. You too share in the baptism. You share in the priesthood of Jesus Christ through your baptism. You say, Father Andre, are you saying we should get up there and celebrate Mass with you? You're already celebrating Mass with us, Deacon Jim and me. You already are. Okay? Let us pray, sisters and brothers, I'll say at the end of the offertory, that my sacrifice and yours may be acceptable to God, our Almighty Father. It is no longer I, it is we. You celebrate with us. You celebrate with us. Your baptism is the key to that. So everything that you see Jesus doing after his baptism... Everything that he does is what you and I are called to become and to do as well. Sometimes it may seem hard. It may seem hard, especially in a church that right now is badly divided, in a country that is nastily divided. 
We come together for car auctions and we watch that, but beyond that, it's a tough time. It's a tough time. How do we heal our church? How do we heal our nation? Please do not say, when everybody from the other political party accepts everybody from this political party. That's not how it works. For us Christians, it means living the gospel of Jesus Christ, and that's how we heal our relationships. You heard me say at the beginning of Mass, we are called to reconciliation with God and with each other. And this is an angry time you and I are living in, a very angry time, a very divided time, and it's not a healthy time for anybody, for our country, our state, or our church. So if you recall that you were baptized... If you recall the meaning of that baptism, it's not a static thing. You can say, well, I'm a Catholic Christian because I was baptized. And the answer is, so what? What are you doing about being a Catholic Christian? How is that making a difference in your life? How is that impacting your contribution to this society, to this wonderful state of Arizona that we have? How has your Catholic Christianity made a difference in what you're doing here? You say, well, it's not making any difference at all. I just do my job and that's it. You say, you're missing the boat, folks. You're missing the boat. Last idea. We have some wonderful sports teams in Arizona. And if you want to list them all, ask Father Eric. He knows them all by heart. (laughs) But people who say they are fans of our sports teams, they go to the games, they cheer, they support their teams, they want their teams to win, and when they win, they celebrate. They're not passive. Somebody says, I'm passionate about the Cardinals. Not the ones in Rome, but the ones in Arizona. I'm passionate about the Coyotes. I'm passionate about this one and that one. They're, they're there with great energy. We Christians, are we here with the energy that God gives us to be healers of the world, to be champions of the gospel, to be sharers of the truth? Amen.